Okay, just so you know how we do this, this is the format for our Q&A. I'll ask the question and then I'm more than happy to take some suggestions for the answer from you uh, and then um, we'll kind of just sort of make sure that we know the right answer or find places in God's word that kind of help us with the answer. So feel free to, to join in, to participate. Um, what I'll have to do tonight, because we won't pass a microphone around, unless you're going to hold it, Delaney, that's fine. If you're going to be the only one that holds it, that's great. Sure, we can do it that way and then people can speak into the microphone if they have things to say. Delaney will, will play our um, hostess as she walks around and <laughs> she Vanna Whites the microphone to every single person. That's great. Okay, so... Uh, we had eight questions of a biblical nature. There were two questions that came that were of a non-biblical nature. So I think we'll just take care of those really quickly first. The first one simply said, how are you doing? And the answer is, great. I guess, I hope that all is true for you too. That was a question that I received. The second question was, why did God give Devante Adams such great skills in running routes? And I don't know if I have a good answer to that other than like every other blessing, the blessing of running good routes is also a blessing of God's grace, I guess we have to say, right? It's, an, it's a gift from God. So those were the first two non-biblical questions. I don't think I can find a chapter and verse of the Bible that tells me why uh, a certain wide receiver has gifts more than others. But that was a, an interesting question that was posed to me. Okay, so here's question number one for tonight uh, as we think about things from a biblical point of view. Number one says this, what exactly is a sin? We talk about sinning, but what are the requirements that make something a sin? Okay, as you think through that, I thought that was a pretty uh, interesting and, and even kind of deep question because there are words that we simply throw out there that, that we kind of get the, the general idea of, but then if you're forced to say, well, what, what, what's really the definition of this? How does this work? It makes you think a little bit. Okay, so anybody have just some thoughts, some suggestions when we talk about what is a sin? We got Natasha over there. Delaney's on her way. Anything that distracts us from Jesus. Okay, something that distracts us from Jesus. I heard Art say up here, uh, if it goes against God's commands, right? God's commandments. Okay, any other thoughts there? It's a little harder to answer that question than you'd first think, right? I mean, when you just kind of pin it down, what is the Bible talking about when it uses the word sin? Would you be surprised to know that the Bible uh, uses, well, sin can be a noun and obviously can be a verb. There are also adjectives in the Bible that describe sinning, that there probably are somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 plus words in the Bible that describe sin in different ways that give us different pictures. Okay, so I'm going to give you some of the more common ones that will give you, I think, a deeper picture of what we're talking about when the Bible uses the word sin. So both in the Old Testament and New Testament, there's a word that means to miss the mark. Uh, it's translated sin, but it has the idea of missing the mark. So if you're picturing archery or darts and you're looking at a dartboard or an archery a target, the idea is you're supposed to hit dead center, right? The bullseye. And if you don't hit the target or you don't hit the middle of the target, you are off. You've missed the mark. And that's really a picture that the Bible uses for sin, too. It is what God expects, perfection, and where we fall short, where we've missed. So all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you know that passage from Romans chapter 3, that word is that word for missing the mark, that we don't quite measure up. 
It's also interesting to note that in the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where God says that he made the one who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in that him we might become the righteousness of God, it's that same word for missing the mark. And I find that remarkable because Jesus didn't miss the mark at all. He lived perfection But in the real way, he suffered for those who did miss the mark. And so it was as if he did because he took all of our sins on himself. So that's an interesting word that the Bible uses. The Bible also uses the word transgression. And by definition, the idea of transgression is crossing a forbidden line. So this is where Art kind of said, you know, anything that goes against what God says in his word. If we step over the line of what God says to do, then we have transgressed, we have sinned. Another picture the Bible uses is the picture of iniquity. Have you heard that word? Are you familiar with that word? Iniquity is, is the, has the idea behind it of, uh, I suppose the concept of iniquity really is this idea of, I would say, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to use the right word, it's a perverseness, it's, it's totally crooked. It, it means that God expected one thing and you did something completely different. Uh, and so iniquities are another word that the Bible uses. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, John says this, that sin is lawlessness. So that's another word that sometimes is an, uh, synonymous with sin, is pretending like there's no law. So there's all kinds of different ways to define sin, but really, I think it, I love what Natasha said at the start when she said, if it's something that distracts us from Jesus, that takes us away, something that, that becomes more important to us than God, I guess ultimately is really what sin is. One more thing I'm going to remind you of from maybe confirmation class days, do you remember these words? That there are sins of commission and sins of omission. Do you remember those words? Right? Uh, James wrote that if, if anyone knows the good he ought to do but doesn't do it, he is sinning. And the point is, if we know the good things that God wants us to do and we aren't able to do them or, or we don't do them, then that is also a, a form of sinning. So most of the ones we talked about at the start were sins of commission, but there are also sins of omission. Does that help? Does that kind of clarify a little bit? And of course, the beauty of 2 Corinthians 5.21 is that whatever definition you give to sin or whatever way you want to describe it, um, it is all taken care of on the cross by Jesus because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Okay, here's question number two for the night. Jesus said, don't call anyone on earth father. Should I not have children to spare my children from having to call me father or to have me as their, fa- their father? Uh, so, this is an interesting question and I, and I understand it's a very literal interpretation of just taking that verse of Matthew chapter 23, verse 9, um, out of its context. So one of the things that's really important when we read the Bible is if, you, if someone quotes a passage like that to you and says, well, what does that mean? That I'm not supposed to call anybody on earth father. You really need to just say, well, let's read the context, the wider context. And in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is speaking to the crowds and his disciples and really the title of the chapter is Seven Woes. Okay, so the troubles that that Jesus sees in the world. And really it ends up being Jesus, um, I I won't say attack, but, but it's really Jesus' encouragement to the Pharisees to see where they're falling short. And so the first 12 verses, a lot of it is about the Pharisees. And it's about the way that the Pharisees long for honor, recognition in this life. 
They wanted the titles. They wanted people to call them things that made them feel special, like they were standing out above all others. And so when Jesus gets to verse 9, he's not talking about an earthly relationship of not calling your, the person who is your dad, your father. He's talking about a title that someone might take for themselves, being called father in the sense that they were a spiritual father for the wrong reason. It doesn't even mean that it's wrong to call somebody who is a spiritual advisor a father. It's that the person who is serving in those positions shouldn't want that above serving other people. All right, it's kind of interesting. I just want to read Matthew chapter 23, verse 11, because I think it's a, it's a good way to sort of whoops, tie this all together. It's in the same section. And so Jesus just says this in Matthew 23, verse 11. The greatest among you will be your servant, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so the words have nothing really to do with being an earthly father. Um, As a matter of fact, think of how many times in the Bible the word father is used for earthly fathers. Honor your father and mother. And so if Jesus is going to call, if God's going to call our earthly father's father, it isn't wrong for us to call our earthly fathers that same name. It really is more the concept of don't strive for honor and glory in this life apart from the service that we can render to God and render to others. Does that make sense a little bit? Okay, I should have given you a chance to answer that one, but you would have had to know the context of that one. All right, let's move on to number three. Do you have any advice with knowing random rules like women should not speak in church? That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We'll get into a little bit more of what it actually says. And so this person says it's hard not to be judgmental when uh, you read a verse like that and then you see someone speaking in church and he said, uh, or the person said, I want to know what to do when I read random laws like that or when I read things in the Bible that I'm not 100% sure of what they mean. All right, it does actually say in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 um, that women should remain silent in the churches. So what does that mean and what does it not mean? Did you, first of all, did you know that the Bible says that? Some of you might be sitting there going, really? What's wrong with the Bible? Well, there is an explanation, and it's a, it's a pretty good explanation, actually. Kirsten in the back, the lady you got a microphone for? So, we actually went through this at my home church when it came to, like, making decisions about our parsonage. Yeah. Um, it, we, like, what it was explained to us is women can say everything that they want to, but when it comes to actually, like, voting on it, um, like, their household is supposed to represent, the male in their household is supposed to, like, represent their family views, so women have, like, no right to vote in a church. Okay, and we're getting to it. There's a reason for that, though. And so he- here's, the, here's the truth that we have to r- arrive at. So a comment like Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 14 that women should remain silent in the church is an application of a deeper principle in Scripture. Does anybody know what that principle is? It's actually found in 1 Timothy chapter 2. You, you basically said it, Kirsten. We just, I'm just going to kind of pin it down. So here's what God actually says, that a, pers- a woman should have no authority over a man when it comes to church things. All right, and, and so then the definition has to be, well, what does that mean? What's authority over a man? And I think in general, a, a voting type situation is looked at as, at, at that way. Um, I think one of the things that we do at chapel that I really love is that we, we try to arrive at a consensus with all people first so that you hear everybody's ideas, everybody's opinions, um, because I think what, what that verse of the Bible doesn't mean is that what, that what women have to say is unimportant. 
And I think the hard part about reading something like that out of context is if you put it in the wider context of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, the Apostle Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. And as he talks about spiritual gifts, he talks about how to use them for the benefit of all people. And it appears, as you read through chapter 14 particularly of 1 Corinthians, that the Corinthian church was struggling with that idea, that concept of using gifts for the good of the entire church. It seems that there was maybe even some disorder in their worship services, that people were standing up to speak whenever they felt like it. They weren't letting the previous person finish. And it really was, uh, uh, I will, I'll, I'll maybe just say it this way, it seems like it was almost a, a grab for some kind of glory. So this fits in really nicely with question number two. When you make something about you, when you make something about your gifts and your skills, then you already are on the wrong track as far as God is concerned. And I know it's hard to understand sometimes or to, to try to come to grips with the fact that, that God has assigned different roles to, to men and women um, when it comes to church things and when it comes to marriage. But, but one of the things that is so important to read and understand from the Bible is that what God expects of men in their leadership roles is not to be people who make all the decisions, not to be people who lord it over others, but people who do it as a service to others. And that's why I think the idea of consensus building, the idea of listening to everybody's opinions, uh, making everybody's opinions important, and getting to that first before uh, there's any authority that's a part of it is, is really important because then you get to hear everybody's voice. He, he, here's the point, I guess. When you look at the scriptural principle and then you look at the applications, what it should say to us as God's people is that men and women have great gifts. And it really is the church's responsibility, it's a Christian's responsibility to use those gifts, to find ways to use those gifts of both men and women in ways that are serving one another and not violating the principle that Scripture gives us. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Let's move on to question number four. I should check how we're doing for time, I guess. Follow-up? Go ahead, John. Uh, just curious. Um, two comments I always had, kind of had. I'm curious to hear what you'd say about them. So the first one I was going to say is one, uh, knowing, especially when coming to the epistles, is the difference between when it's being said out of this is God's word and when it's being said out of this is a suggestion or an application for this one church at this one time. The other comment I was going to say is, um, what was it? So no, my dad, his comment was always, the role of men leading the church is on the conditional that the men are suitable to lead the church at the time. Well, there's certainly, so the sec, I'll start with the second one. There certainly are stipulations that are given both in 1 Timothy and Titus for those who want to be overseers, who want to be leaders in the church. So there's no question about that. Um, that it's not just any person that God wants in a leadership position. And I can tell you as someone who has served as a pastor, those are scary sections of scripture to read because I know how difficult it is to measure up to the things that Paul lays out for both Timothy and Titus. But that is very true. There are, there are stipulations. The answer to the first question is that's why we try to identify what the scriptural principle is. And when you get to, uh, when you get to 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is not speaking about a specific congregation at a specific time. He's laying out a principle. But you're correct. When you go back to 1 Corinthians 14, that comment certainly seems a lot more directed to the Corinthian congregation because of what the, what the troubles are in that congregation. So I think you have to read it in the wider context to, to see that Paul is speaking directly to the congregation in Corinth. That's a good, those good follow-up questions. Thank you. All right. All right, question number four.
Question number four says this. First John chapter 3, verse 6 seems like it tells us, tells us that if we sin, we don't know Jesus and we aren't saved. How do we interpret? Let me just read First John chapter 3, verse 6 to you so that you can hear it for yourselves. It says this, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. So the question seems pretty accurate, I would say, right? If you just read that verse at face value, it says people who keep on sinning, anybody who sins doesn't know Jesus um, and is in spiritual danger. So how do we explain that in light of the rest of God's word? Anybody have some thoughts about 1 John chapter 3, verse 6? Again, can I just say, there's a kind of a theme to a lot of the questions tonight. And the theme to this question is, read the wider context. Okay, because, again, if you just pull that verse out and read that verse, you can read a lot of things into that that the rest of, the script, the rest of Scripture does not say. So I'm going to back up to verse 1, just five verses before this verse, to let you, read, to let you hear what, what uh, John says in chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Um, and then verse 2, Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then verse 5, But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. All right, hopefully the wider context helps just a little bit there because how could, we be, how could anyone be called the children of God if it was up to us to stop sinning, right? It wouldn't be possible. It wouldn't be possible for that to happen. So we see first the grace of God and now this is the difference between, do you remember these two words from way back when? Justification and sanctification. Anytime we get words longer than six or seven letters, we start panicking a little bit. Oh, I remember that from confirmation class, but I don't remember exactly what it means, right? Justification is God's declaration. It's a one-time act where God says, on the basis of what Jesus has done for you, you are not guilty. All right, that, that's awesome. That's what the Bible teaches, right? It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. But what happens after justification is what we call sanctification, it's the process of becoming or being made the holy people that God has called us to be. And this side of heaven, that will never be complete. And so it's frustrating to know that God has declared me to be holy, but I struggle to live as God's holy person. Um, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 said it this way, the good that I want to do, I don't do. It's the evil that I don't want to do that I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's not me who does it, but sin living in me that does it. What a wretched person I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. And so the, the, the concept is this. How do we measure um, what God means to us? Well, it certainly makes a change in our lives, right? And so I think the verb tense that you see um, in the original Greek, it's an imperfect tense. And what imperfect means is that it's ongoing action. So when Jesus makes the change in my heart and brings faith to me so that I'm a child of God and an heir of eternal life, then my goal is to live according to that change that God has made in me. And while it won't be perfect, I know that, that Jesus has forgiveness for me when I fail. Right? I think what, we're trying to, what John's trying to get at in 1 John chapter 3 is the concept, have you heard this word before, cheap grace? 
what cheap grace is. Hey, as long as Jesus has forgiven all my sins, I can just do whatever I want. And as long as I say, please forgive me right before I die, everything's good, right? And, and as you read through the Bible, all of the writers, the Apostle Paul, John here, make very, very clear that when we come to faith in Jesus, a change happens in our lives. So that we want to walk away from, turn away from sin as we turn to Jesus. And so what John is trying to remind us of is let God's grace, this love that he's lavished on us to call us his children, make a change in our hearts and in our lives. And if that isn't happening, then we got to go right back to that grace of God, first of all for forgiveness, but then also for the empowerment to, to live as God has called us to live. How are we doing with that one? Everybody on board? <laughs> that was a good question. Yes, very good. All right, we just got a couple minutes left. We might not make through all of them here, but I'm going to kind of combine a couple of the next two because they're similar to these. So um, number five, how can one respond when, argued, when it's argued that the Bible is full of contradictions or isn't literal? And uh, very quickly, most of the time when there are contradictions in the Bible, people who find those contradictions are looking for them. And oftentimes they're misunderstandings of, a, or, or of something that we don't understand from the original writer or they're, um, they're, they're purposely made to, to not grasp what God is trying to say. It does appear from time to time in the Bible that there are things that are at odds with one another. But this is where, again, you use the wider context of Scripture and you let the clearer passage of Scripture give meaning to those things that are less clear. Here would be my advice. If, if you have someone that comes to you and says, well, I don't trust the Bible, it's full of contradictions, this is what I would say to them. Just keep reading it. Keep reading it because the power of God's word will change people's hearts. You aren't going to argue them out of believing there are contradictions, but as they grow and as they read scripture and as they see what God is saying in his word, God will convince them of the truth of his word. Here's what I know, what the Bible says about itself. Um, in Second Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Um, God tells us that his word is inspired and therefore we trust that it is exactly what God needs us to know and wants us to know. All right, question number six. Why is there evil and suffering if God controls all things? How can a loving God allow sin to exist? If there's one question I received from high school students when I taught high school more than any other, when we were going through Genesis, it was this one. Why, if God knew that there was going to be Satan and Satan was going to bring evil into the world, did he ever create the angels that were going to fall away from him? Why did he put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden of, of, of Eden if he knew that Adam and Eve were going to eat from it? Why would he allow suffering and sin to enter into this world? And I can tell you this, I don't have a perfect answer for this because the Bible does not have a perfect answer for it. But here's one of the things I think about a lot. Had God kept the world perfect, and, and remember, he did actually make a perfect world. It wasn't God who ruined the perfect world. It was, it was sin that ruined it. But if God had made a perfect world and let us continue to live in that perfect world, we would have known his love. We would have seen it in his creation. We would have seen it in all the blessings that he brought to us. But I wonder sometimes if we don't have even a deeper appreciation for God's love when after human beings were given an opportunity to choose holiness and failed, that God still decided they were worth saving. That he would send his one and only son to suffer and die in their place. I, I find that to be pretty remarkable because I think if most of us were God 
and we gave people one command, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as the opportunity that Adam and Eve had to worship, and they disobeyed that one command, I'm not sure how many of us would be patient enough to say, okay, well, I'm still going to fix this. I'm going to make it okay. And I'm pretty sure there's none of us, I'll say with certainty, there's none of us that would have said, you know what, I'll sacrifice my own son who hasn't done anything wrong for the people who sinned against him so that they can live with me forever in heaven. I think we get a deeper appreciation for God's love by understanding that even when evil entered into the world, that that God had a solution, that he had his own son uh, coming to suffer and die for us. So, So why does suffering still continue? This is one of the big lies of Satan, isn't it? Satan will basically pin us into a corner and say this, well, either God isn't loving or God isn't as powerful as he says he is, right? Because If God is love and God is all-powerful, then it stands to reason that every bad thing that happens in this world could be and should be prevented. Right? God loves me. God has power over all things. So nothing bad should ever happen to me. But there's a third alternative. And the third alternative is that God has a good purpose even behind the suffering that he allows in this world. Right? And the good purpose sometimes that God has is teaching us perseverance in our faith, right? Sometimes it's reminding us that this is not our home, but that we have a better place, a place that is free from all of this suffering that's coming. And then the third thing I think of all the time is Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where God says, there is no condemnation, there's no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think our view of suffering sometimes is that God is sitting up in heaven and he's waiting for us to do something wrong and then he's going to zap us with a bunch of troubles to get even with us. And I promise you that God doesn't do that. Well, I should rewind that a little bit. God promises you that he doesn't do that because somebody already suffered your punishment for sin and that somebody is Jesus. So any suffering that God allows in your life and mine, any suffering in this world is to point us ahead to point us ahead to the place that will be free from all of that suffering uh, with our Lord in heaven. Sita, go ahead, follow up. Where, where does uh, free will come into that? Well, so there certainly was free will, and I, I would say this. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them holy. But he also gave them the opportunity to make holiness a conscious choice. Uh, this is the best way I've ever had it explained to me. If you've ever had a doll that you can squeeze the stomach or something or pull a little string in the back and the doll says, I love you? How meaningful was that? Right? It's programmed to do that, right? You pull the string, I love you. Yeah, I mean, what, that means nothing. And, and so God didn't create Adam and Eve to simply wrote, repeat what God wanted them to say. He wanted them to consciously choose the holiness that he created them in. And he gave them an opportunity to do that. He gave them every tree in the, in, in the Garden of Eden to eat from except for one. One of my favorite quotes of Martin Luther is that he called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil Adam's church. It was his altar. It was his pulpit. That was where Adam went to worship because he could say, God, you've given me this beautiful garden and all these great things and out of love for you, I'm not going to eat of this one tree, this one tree of, knowledge, of the knowledge of good and evil. And so, yes, the the idea of free will was God wanted human beings to consciously choose to live in the holiness that God created them in. And Adam and Eve were capable of doing that because they were created perfect. Today, you and I are not capable of doing that anymore because we are born sinful. And so all of our choices are tainted by sin. 
But at one time, that free will was a choice that Adam and Eve could certainly make. Does that help? Well, we still have free will, but free will is tainted by sin, which is why the Bible says that I cannot... Um, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. I can't choose holiness anymore because sin doesn't allow me to choose it. I need God to choose it for me and he does that by the Holy Spirit working through the word. So that, that's what's different is the sin that entered the world. Good, good clarification, thank you. All right, I think we're just about out of time. Can I just tell you the other two questions and then you can think about them? Or do you want me to try and answer them quick? How are we doing? You guys okay? All right, let's finish. I'll try to do it in just a couple of minutes. Here's question number seven. How can we encourage others to, not to live in sin while not avoiding the plank in our own eyes? And so if you know the Matthew 7 passage, do not judge or you will be judged. Don't, don't look at the plank in somebody else's eye before taking the speck of sawdust out of your own eye. The whole point of that is that God doesn't want us to judge in a self-righteous manner. Right? My judgment of others should never be to pat myself on the back and say, well, okay, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm better than a lot of other people. Right? And, and so it's not that we can't judge. As a matter of fact, 1 John chapter 4 tells us to test the spirits to see whether they're from God. There, there is some judgment that God, that God certainly does and that he permits Christians to do, but he doesn't want us to judge others self-righteously. So as you speak to someone about sin, it's always a good idea to say things like this. You know, I'm concerned about you. And I'm not perfect. And I know that, that there are sins that I struggle with, but I see that you're struggling with this sin and what I'm really worried about is that somehow it's going to take you away from your Savior. And that's why I'm talking to you about this. Not because I think I'm holy, but because I, I, I want you to not lose the faith that God has given you. And I think when you always come at it from a, an angle of concern, when, when you're truly concerned about somebody else's soul, then you'll act in the love that God wants us to act and not in the self-righteous judgment of being better than someone else. Okay, last but not least, question number eight. Did the system of circumcision and animal sacrifice in the Old Testament provide salvation from sin? It's kind of a tricky question because technically the answer is no, it did not. Uh, as a matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27 says that um, the sacrifices of the Old Testament made by the priests needed to be repeated day after day after day because they didn't forgive sin. But Jesus came to this world to die once for all um, so that his sacrifice was good once for all time. So here's the point. Old Testament Christians and New Testament Christians were saved in the exact same way, by believing in Jesus. The only difference was the perspective. So if you lived in the Old Testament, you didn't know who Jesus was. You knew the promise of a Messiah. You knew that God was going to send a Savior, but Jesus hadn't come yet. So an Old Testament Christian, I'll do it this way because this is the Old Testament for you guys. Old Testament Christians looked ahead to Jesus coming. New Testament Christians look back on the fact that Jesus has already come. But do you understand that faith is the same and the faith is in the Savior and that's how people are forgiven? Uh, we just covered it last week in Sunday Bible study, uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited to him his righteousness. So Abraham was right before God was by believing God's promises. The way New Testament Christians are right before God is by believing God's promises and all of those things are centered in Jesus. What sacrifices did, what the covenant of circumcision did, is it pointed people ahead. It made people look ahead to what was coming. And that's why they were practiced, was to point people ahead to where their forgiveness came from. And that's from the Savior who is going to come and die. And today we look back on the Savior who's already come and died for us. All right, you guys, those were great questions.
maybe not the Devante Adam ones, but all the Adams one, but all the other questions were really, really good. Uh, so thanks for submitting those. We'll do this again second semester. So if you're thinking of questions, you can submit them at any time. Send them to me. I will send you an answer to your question if, we, if it's a long ways away from the Q&A night. Um, and then um, I'll just put it on the list for, to ask for everybody later. 